Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you all to, to just take a moment to think about all of the different things that have become outdated since the turn of the century, since the year 2000. For instance, when was the last time that you were driving down the road and you had to, to pull over and, and take out a map to see where you were going? Or when was the last time that, that you yelled at a family member because they picked up the telephone while you were trying to get online to check your email? And I know for, for some of you guys in the back there, that doesn't even begin to make sense, but it happened. Or when was the last time you, you backed something up onto a floppy disk? Or, or looked up a friend's number in a telephone book? Or placed an advertisement in the newspaper classifieds? Have you noticed that as time goes on and, and technology keeps improving, we get these things that are newer and better, and then the old things start to seem outdated and obsolete, even useless? It happens so much today that sometimes when we have something before us that works perfectly fine, it's perfectly good, we refuse to use it simply because it's old, and there's a newer one that we could use, don't we? Well, today, this morning, we, we take a look at the account of the very first Passover. And just like the accounts from the last couple of weeks, it comes from the Old Testament. Now, there are people out there that view the Old Testament the same way we view those outdated pieces of technology. After all, it's called the Old Testament isn't it? And if it's so old, maybe it's outdated and useless too. Maybe we can just pass it by and move right on to the New Testament. But as we take a look at our lesson today, we're going to find that we just can't do that. We can't afford to pass over the Old Testament, and we certainly can't afford to pass over the Passover. But before we find out why, why we can't do that, let's, let's kind of recap where we're at. Last week we saw Abraham and he received that awesome promise from God that he was going to become a great nation and all peoples on earth were going to be blessed through him. Then 25 years later, Abraham finally starts to see the fulfillment of that promise when, when he gets his son, Isaac. And Isaac grows up and God passes the promise on to him, that same promise he had given to Abraham. Then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob grows up and the, the promise passes on to him. So Jacob grows up, he has this awesome experience, this wrestling match with God. And after he wrestles with God, God says, I'm going to give you a new name, I'm going to give you the name Israel. And this is where we see the family really start to increase because Israel has 12 sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Asher, Gad, Naphtali, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And you guys know what happens to Joseph. His brothers, they're jealous of him and they sell him into slavery. He gets hauled off to Egypt and thrown into a prison. And he sits there for a long time until his God-given gift of interpreting dreams gets him set up as ruler over all of Egypt. 
And so then when this great famine, this seven-year-long famine hits the land, Joseph brings his father Jacob and his 11 brothers and all of their families, a group of now around 100 people, to live with them there in Egypt. But over the next 400 years, Jacob and, and Joseph and his other brothers die, and that Pharaoh dies, and a new Pharaoh comes and takes over. And he makes the people of Israel, those Israelites, he makes them slaves for the Egyptians. And even in slavery, though, they keep growing until they're a nation now of almost 2 million people strong. But, but time out. Hold on. Where's Jesus, right? I mean, that's why we're here. We're here because we want to see Jesus. And we learned last week that in that promise God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we saw Jesus, that that's how he was going to bless all nations through them. But it doesn't really seem like that we're seeing that here. And the Israelites were probably thinking the same thing. Okay, we've been in slavery for hundreds of years now. How exactly is God blessing other people through us? And, and how is this his plan for making our name great? And so they cry out. They cry out to God, and God hears their call for help, and he sends them this impressive leader, this great prophet, Moses. And Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do that. So God sends nine terribly devastating plagues to ravage the land of Egypt. And still, even after all of that, Pharaoh won't let the Hebrew people go. And that catches us up with where we're starting this morning. Except for one more thing. God had told Moses to go to Pharaoh and let him know that there was going to be one final plague. And that every firstborn son in Egypt was going to die. And so, then we read, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. When I was in high school, I had a professor. He taught math and geometry and Every single time he had a point that he really wanted to make, that he wanted all of us to get, he would say, hey, hey guys, big deal alert. And then even of us in the back that were drifting off and, and falling asleep knew, yeah, okay, we should probably sit up and pay attention because who knows, this might even be on the test. Well, when God comes to you in conversation and says, I'm going to rework your year, restructure your calendar so that this month is the first month of your year, that's a big deal alert. Something huge was about to happen. And God lays out these detailed instructions for the Israelites so that they can get through it all. Step one. They needed a lamb. That lamb had to be perfect. It had to be unblemished. God wasn't going to accept any sickly or broken-boned or, or otherwise injured lamb. This lamb had to be perfect. And since it was going to be taking the place of that, that boy, that son of the Israelite family, the lamb had to be male. Step two, the lamb had to die. God commanded those Israelites that they were to take that lamb after four days 
and they were to slaughter it. And then take some of the blood and paint it on the door frames of their houses. And that was going to be a sign for them, and then the Lord would spare them from the destruction of that tenth plague. Well, it was a night that nobody slept. And try, try to imagine it. It's not hard for us to, to wrap our minds around the concept of staying up until midnight waiting for something to happen. We do it at least once every single year. With maybe a, a party hat on and a noisemaker in one hand, a, a glass of bubbly in the other hand, we, we sit there and count down the seconds until the new year arrives. When the f- clock finally strikes midnight, nothing really happens. We say our goodnights and then we go home and then we go about our lives like normal. Not so on that night. Because God had told the Israelites, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And after that, Pharaoh will let you go. So try and picture, if you can, the Israelites. They've finished eating that Passover meal, and now they're sitting there in their homes with their their children gathered around them, sandals on, staff in hand, and everything's packed up in a nice pile over by the door. And so they sit, and they, they listen, and they wait, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, until finally, at midnight, it starts. Somewhere in a house in the land of Egypt, a mother screams. And then another, and then another, until all at once, the entire land, the entire nation is filled with the cries and the sobs and the screams of of people who have just lost their sons and their brothers. But not the Israelites. They were safe. They were safe and they were free. But why? In future years as they celebrated that day and they looked back, What was going through their heads? What could they learn from the events of that Passover night? Well, first of all, it showed them who they were. Because up until that point, it had been painfully obvious. They were were slaves. And there was nothing they could do about it. But on Passover, all of that changed. Now, they were free. They had been delivered from their slavery, and it wasn't something they did for themselves. And that's the second thing that we see they learned. They learned what it was that God had done for them. Because in their hour of need, God came and destroyed, defeated the Egyptians. And He delivered them, not just from their slavery, but from the destruction of that plague as well. And so there was a lot that the Israelites had to learn. They were now they were rescued because they trusted in God. But that rescue wasn't free. Remember that lamb? The one that had to die? Well, the Passover taught the Israelites one more thing. It started to teach them this lesson that they were going to know 
all too well by the time their history played out. We'll learn a lot more about that next week. It started to teach them that in order for them to be saved, blood had to be spilled. But in the grand scheme of things, what does it really matter to us? What happened to the Hebrews or, or to the Egyptians 3,500 years ago? You guys aren't here today because you want to study ancient history. You're here because you want to see Jesus. Well, the, the delivery of the Israelites, the Passover, and the tenth plague, those were all big deals in their time. As we look at the Passover, we see that they were only a shadow of the things that were to come. And as we study the Passover, we can see, and, and I'm sure you're catching on to it already, that all along it was, it was an arrow. A road sign pointing us to the real deal. Because as we study the Passover, we're reminded of who we are. Just like those Israelites in Egypt, we were slaves. Not slaves to, to the Egyptians or to any other nation here on earth. We were slaves to Satan. And to the sin that Satan had trapped us in. And to the punishment for that sin, which is death. Death and an eternity of suffering in hell. And that slavery goes all the way back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We learned about that two weeks ago, how Adam and Eve took that plunge, that dive into sin, and, and ever since that moment, it's a part of who we are. It's inside us, deeper than our DNA. It's a part of our nature. We're slaves. And there's nothing we can do about it. But then on, on one particular Passover, one and a half thousand years after the one we're reading about this morning, everything changed. We were set free. We were delivered from our slavery to sin, and it wasn't something that we did for ourselves. Sound familiar? And maybe, maybe you can guess where I'm going to go next. The Passover also shows us what God has done for us. Because just like with the Israelites in our hour of need, just like he sent Moses and the plagues to defeat the Egyptians, he sent Jesus, the seed of the woman, to crush our enemy, the devil. And just like he rescued the Israelites from their slavery to the Egyptians and the destruction of the plagues, he has saved us from our slavery to sin and the punishment of hell. So we see there's this, this repetition. We see that the whole Old Testament story was pointing us ahead to what God would do for us. But once again, just like with the Egyptians and the Israelites, our rescue, our salvation from that slavery wasn't free. Because just like with the Israelites, for us to be saved, blood had to be shed. And so it seemed we needed a lamb. 
One that could take away the punishment for all of our sins. And not just all of us here. Everyone in the whole world. Not just today, but going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. To Adam and Eve. And that's why starting with Adam and Eve, God promised that He was going to send that Lamb. And all the way through the Old Testament, His prophets foretold the coming of that Lamb. Until one day, the very last of those Old Testament prophets, a man named John, was standing on a riverbank teaching the people. When he looked up, And he saw Jesus. And you know what he said? He said, look. The Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. Those Israelite firstborn children were saved by the blood of a lamb. But brothers and sisters, we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ. And just like that Passover lamb, there were certain requirements that Jesus had to meet to be our substitute. He had to be perfect. And for Jesus, being perfect, being unblemished, didn't mean that he wasn't sickly. It meant that he had to live his life in perfect righteousness, never sinning, never breaking God's law. Something that those of us humans who are enslaved to sin could never do. The Bible tells us that no man can redeem the life of another man, much less the whole world. So our lamb had to be God. Had to be God so that he could live that perfect life for us and so that his payment could pay for all of us. But since our lamb was coming to take the place of men and women and children, our lamb also had to be a man. He had to be a man because we're under God's law, and so he too had to be born under God's law so that he could then fulfill that law for us. And he had to be a man because as the Passover lamb, he was going to do something which God, under normal circumstances, does not do. The lamb had to die. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Our perfect Savior, God, died. He poured out His blood on the cross so that now, when God looks at us, instead of seeing a sinner, He sees that blood of the Lamb painted on your hearts and He passes over us with His judgment. So we are no longer slaves to sin, but we're free. And we've been given a new life in Christ. When God set the Israelites free, He didn't do it quietly. He did it with a bang. Because He wanted everyone to know that this was His people, His holy nation. And in order to set them apart from the the people around them, He starts to give them this new culture that they would have. And He gives them those instructions for the Passover celebration. And for the festival of unleavened bread. And and all of these laws and instructions which God gave the Israelites didn't necessarily make things easier for them. Some of those instructions weren't going to 
make life better or, or less complicated. For instance, getting rid of all the leaven in your household for an entire week meant that at the end of the celebration, they had to start that bread-making process again from scratch. And you couldn't just go down to a metro or, or Canadian superstore and buy a packet of yeast. You had to make the dough and then, and then wait until yeast fell out of the air into your dough and then it could start to rise again. It, it wasn't necessarily going to make their way of life any easier, but the Israelites didn't do it because it was easy. They did it because they were so thankful for what God had done for them. And when God rescued us from our slavery to sin, He did it with an even bigger bang. Because the very foundations of the earth shook on the night that Jesus died on the cross. And He died so that we, just like the Israelites, could be a holy nation, a people set apart for God. But His instructions for us are a lot simpler. Love God. Love your neighbor. And yeah, while they might be simpler and a lot more succinct, it's still not easy, is it? And we have to always be on our guard so that the wicked ways that Jesus has freed us from don't come right back into our life. It can be as easy as one little, well, well maybe just this one time, and then we're right back where we were before. And that's what the Apostle Paul was warning us about in the Scripture lesson when he said, don't you know that even a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So get rid of that yeast of sin so you can be a new loaf, a new person, a person living for Jesus. And as we get that sin out of our lives, it's, it's not always going to seem like the easy way out. But we don't do it because it's easy. We do it out of thanks for the Lamb of God, for Jesus, and what He's done for us. As we live our lives for Jesus, it's not just going to be about, about getting the wickedness and the sin out. Because following Jesus in the end isn't just about what we don't do. We're also going to let our light shine. As we go and, and tell our family, our friends, and everyone we meet about what it is that Jesus has done for us and what it is He's done for them. Just like those Israelites told their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren about what God had done for them at the Passover when He led them out of their slavery in Egypt. And so you see, we can't just pass over those details and stories and accounts of the Old Testament. Because they're such a big deal. And there's so much that we can learn from them, but, but above all, they help us to gain a better understanding of the real deal. Of Jesus and His salvation work. There's no way that anyone can say that the Old Testament is obsolete or outdated or useless because it has a definite use. It helps us to see Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. 
And now may the peace of God, which is more than any of us can understand, guard and keep you with Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.